TED Audio Collective. Hi, everyone. Here is a little something different for you today. We're sharing an episode of the TED Interview, another podcast in the TED Audio Collective. It's hosted by author Stephen Johnson, and you'll get to experience his conversations with the world's most fascinating minds. Right now, the topic of conversation is the future of work and the future of intelligence. Here's an episode we thought you'd like. And if you want more, follow the TED interview wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to the TED Interview. I'm Stephen Johnson. One of the defining properties of a global pandemic, beyond the life and death struggles with disease itself, is the fact that it disrupts so many of the routines of everyday life. Usually we're glad when the case counts drop and we get to go back to normal life again, attending in-person school or dining out in restaurants. But in certain cases, the COVID disruptions have left us wondering if some of our old routines were really the optimal ones. Nowhere is this rethinking of habit more pronounced than in the world of work, which is one reason we've decided to focus a number of shows this season on the future of the workplace. We're obviously in the middle of a major conversation about the pros and cons of working from home, which has major implications for city downtowns and commercial real estate and the environment. But there's another movement that has been amplified by the pandemic, which is less about where we do our work and more about when. And that's the campaign for a four-day work week. Just last month, 70 companies in the UK launched what organizers are calling the most ambitious test program yet, exploring the merits of a four-day work week, where more than 3,000 employees will work 80% of the time while still being paid 100% of their previous wages, with the expectation that they remain just as productive as they were during the five-day week. Now, that may sound like a fantastic deal to you, or it might sound like a fantasy. But either way, you'll want to hear from today's guest, Juliet Shore, who has been one of the most persuasive advocates for the four-day week in recent years. Shore is an economist, author, and professor of sociology at Boston College. She's the author of more than five books, including 1992's The Overworked American and a recent book on the sharing economy, After the Gig, which also has a lot of implications for the post-COVID labor landscape. We spoke earlier this year at TED Vancouver, where she gave a talk on the four-day workweek movement and her research with companies around the world who are giving it a try. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on trends in technology. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice 
or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... (laughs) 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Juliet Shore, welcome to the TED interview. Oh, thank you. Great pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start with just to, giving you an opportunity to f- reflect on the last two years. I mean, what has surprised you the most? It's been kind of mind-boggling, I have to say, as someone who has spent a lot of her career trying to sort of get change in the workplace and, you know, frankly, been fairly <laughs> unsuccessful Both the speed and the extent to which previously held, strongly held views about what has to happen, the way things need to be, has been completely overturned. So we've talked so much in the national conversation about work from home, which, of course, has just been a massive transformation, you know, along these lines. But it's been much more than that. You know, I work on work. I also do a lot on climate and and sort of changing consumption patterns and so forth. And I don't know, a few months into the pandemic, you know, nobody was buying anything because mm. there's nothing to buy. And, you know, just hoping that people would change their habits sort of long term and they would stop flying and doing all these things. And, you know, I was saying all this like, oh, I hope this happens to that. And I can't say I really sort of had a lot of faith in the fact that those changes would happen. The workplace has been really different because the workplace, I think, is changing. I don't want to say forever, but it's a durable change. It's like they can't put Humpty back together again. They can't. Yeah. It's a fascinating time. So, we're here at, at the TED conference, and we're in Vancouver, and uh, just a day or two ago, you gave a terrific talk from the TED stage. Congratulations. Thank I'm you. Glad. Thank I'm you. sure you're very relieved to it have it behind you. a lot of fun. <laughs> very well received. Um, and on the stage, you, you made the case for a, a very specific change um, that has been you know, floating around before COVID, but suddenly it seems more viable for all the reasons we're talking about now. And, and that is this idea of the four-day work week. Tell us about the, where it has been implemented and, and what the results have been. You know, kind of make the case for the four-day work week. Yeah. So, you know, beginning in like 
2014, almost 10 years ago, you start to see various governments and individual companies who are experimenting with shorter work hours. And the key bit to this is shorter work hours with no cuts in pay. Yeah. And not four-day condensed week where it's four 10-hours. I mean, you had that in Utah during the um, financial crisis. Uh They went to a four 10-hour days, and people liked it a lot. But So these are real, genuine work time reductions with no reductions in pay. The biggest uh, trial was in Iceland. Most of them went to 36, 35, and more and more are going to 32. Phenomenal results, like less stress, lower work-family conflicts, more energy levels, productivity stays the same or gets better, doesn't cost anything. Everyone in Iceland now is either on one of these shorter hour schedules or they can be. They have the they're eligible for them. Um, and then you get individual companies doing it. Not a lot of them, but uh, the one that made sort of the most uh, you know had the most headlines is a New Zealand company uh, owned by a man named Andrew Barnes. He read a. Uh, an article in a business magazine saying the average worker works, I don't remember if it was two or three hours a day. I mean, some really low number. And he's like, wow, that's really interesting. He believed it. I I think it's (laughs) probably an underestimate. But anyway, (laughs) but the point was absolutely right, that there's a lot of slack in the day. Some of it actually spent on slack. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So he goes back to New Zealand and says, I'm going to do this in my company. And he gets a researcher from the University of Auckland to study exactly what happens. And it's fabulous. Mm. You know, people are much happier. Revenue is growing. The company's thriving. They're getting better people. You know, everything that he's trying to measure looks good. And he becomes very, you know, passionate about this idea and starts a worldwide movement called Four Day Week Global, to try and tell people about it. And um, meanwhile, there are individual companies doing a lot of them in tech. Um, Once the pandemic started, the momentum started to build and they got in touch with me and we started our Irish trial February 1st. So we are, companies are voluntarily joining a trial. They're getting coaching, help on implementation and so forth. And then my team is researching the outcomes, Mm. both on the company side and the employee side. We're looking at economic, social, and uh, carbon outcomes. Is there some reason this is only happening on island nations? (laughs) Oh, oh, no. You know what? Ireland was just the first. (laughs) Okay. Um, You've got New Zealand. We've got Iceland. We've got Ireland. Now, the UK is interesting. We have more than twice as many companies and employees uh, signed up for the UK trial. They've had a four-day week campaign going for years in the UK. Um, and then the Australasians are starting in uh, in August. So we're... we're Moving we're off the, of the English language <laughs> And the Spanish government announced a four-day week trial months ago hmm. in which they're paying the fifth day. So the companies don't have to take the risk. Right. Uh, that productivity will go down. And we, we can talk about that. One of the big themes of these 
Andrew Barnes' perpetual guardian system is that people do 100% of the work and 80% of the time. Yeah, that's that's. I wanted to touch on that. I'm glad you raised this. So when, when we see examples where productivity doesn't decline, we're not talking about adjusting for the fourth day. We're saying absolute productivity of the four-day week, the output at the end of that four-day week is the same or roughly the same as a five-day week. Yes. And the argument there is the slack time. That basically, if people know they're there for five days, they spend more time checking Facebook and they spend more time, you know, they're just less efficient with their time. Is that is that yes. basically the idea? So the idea is that there's low or zero productivity activity going on and just get rid of it. Give people that full day off that you can get that 20% yeah. one, one day. So the biggest thing is actually probably not Slack, although that's, yes, meetings. One of Andrew Barnes' really important lessons was you have to reorganize work to get rid of that low productivity activity, and you have to let the employees themselves figure out how to do it. Right, right. So meetings are the number one thing that the companies get control over in order to make this work. The dramatic case was Microsoft Japan, which... Um, they had a sort of draconian change in meeting policy, and they actually had a 40% increase in productivity. Right. I, I have to say on the meetings front, I, I spent some time in my career in, in kind of tech startups where I was going into an office and, you know, working alongside other people. And twice I kind of shifted back to more or less being a writer working from home. And each time the vast the, the single biggest improvement in my quality of life was the radical reduction in meetings. <laughs> like yeah. The meetings are just a terrible time suck and and soul, um, a soul suck on some level. Um, and it was just super liberating to, to be out of that. So I can see that if, if you if you pair them back, you can really get a lot more efficiency. Yeah, and there are a lot of dimensions to meetings. So they're like, how many meetings are there? How long do they last? How many people go to them? Um, yeah how much time do you have to prepare for them? And so that's that's the number one thing. And then you also have, you know, some of the employees that I've interviewed will talk about things like, um, you know, I don't make phone calls to people anymore. I just message them because then we don't have any chit chat. I mean, you're losing something there, mm -hmm. but they're saying it's worth it. Right. Tell me a little bit about the, the work environments where this doesn't play very well. So we'll start with manufacturing. Yeah. Um, I think you mentioned that I wrote The Overworked American, 1992. Yes. Uh, after I wrote that, I was looking for companies who were interested in reducing work time, and I wanted to study what would happen. And I went to Motorola. I had a contact, and, and you know, we talked everything through, and they said, you know what? We have intensified work so mm -hmm. much, we cannot intensify anymore. They'd already been through all that Japanese management yeah. and... So manufacturing is at a pretty high pace in a lot of places. So any kind of workplace where people are either really working very intensively now, where they're overworked, where they're too stressed out, you can't ask them to intensify their work. You, you yeah. can't ask them to pay for that yes. with more work intensity. So I think about teachers, I think about um, healthcare workers, manufacturing workers, you know, there are other service workers who are already at really high pace. And so 
those people also deserve free time. And here we have other interesting experiments where people were just given free time without being asked to intensify. So there were some trials done in Sweden with nurses where they were given six-hour days and they just hired new people. They get a lot of cost savings on the healthcare side with the nurses mm. and on the fewer sick days, fewer less unemployment benefits. People are not quitting and burning out. I had a COVID test this morning and uh, the nurse who did my test said she had seen my talk and she was just finally someone understanding what's going on with nurses. I'm sending this out to all of my nurse <laughs> right. friends, but they're experiencing that burnout. And you do have some companies that are giving four-day weeks to those kinds of workers without expecting them to intensify. So we have a restaurant chain that's part of our trial their managers are at 55 hours and they're going down into the 40s um, because they're they're burning people out. They can't get people. People are resigning. So you've got a lot of heterogeneity in the workforce, but the four-day week can work for those different kinds of situations. The other thing that you mentioned in the talk that I thought was striking is using that fifth day as a place where you stack up all your errands or your doctor's appointments or things like that. It's not just like another day of leisure. It's just you're more efficient about, okay, I know that Fridays I'm not going into the office and I'm not expected to work. And so that's when I can schedule all the extra things in the week that I need to do. Yeah. I mean, beforehand, you would have been leaving the office to go to the doctors, right? right? So your company wasn't getting that. And I think it's probably worth just reminding our listeners that the five-day week was itself a kind of invention. Um, can you just tell us to briefly like the the history of uh, of that convention? Yeah. I'll go back a little earlier. Oh, good. So with the development of industrial capitalism, and of course also with plantation agriculture, you get a tremendous increase in working hours. So more and more days per week, lengthening of the working day, Um, as people went into factories and plantations and so forth. And so, you know, by the second half of the 19th century, working hours were, you know, twice what they came to be, you know, roughly around now. Now, they're a little bit even less than that now. But, you know, we're talking average 60-hour weeks, 3,000 hours a year. I mean, really arduous schedules. So you you begin to get the uh, pressure from workers, so through labor unions and other kinds of pressures to reduce working hours. And that process starts, you know, roughly 1870 or so forth in Britain. You get it in the United States. And the first thing that happens is you get rid of Sunday work. And then you get the two-day weekend. You've probably seen the bumper sticker, you know, the labor movement where the people who brought you the weekend. (laughs) And you're moving to the five-day week um, in the first half of the 20th century, and it it's happens unevenly. The U.S. is the first of the wealthy nations to go to a five-day week. And then, of course, in the Depression, we get the Fair Labor Standards Act, which enshrines the 40-hour week as the normative work week. That's very helpful. I mean, I, th- I think we forget just how much work we've grown accustomed to in a post-industrial society compared to previous societies, particularly if you go back to pre-agricultural societies. And we're going to stay focused on the modern day, but I just read this amazing study looking at 
people's activity, kind of hourly activity in hunter-gatherer societies, just kind of itemizing what they were doing. And the, the most striking discovery was that they would spend something like 20% of their time doing nothing. That there was a huge block of time. It wasn't just it wasn't just leisure versus work. It was actual sitting around doing nothing was was a significant part of the day, which it seems unimaginable to us now. I think it's it absolutely is because the vantage point from which most people think about work in our society is that mid nineteenth century point, which is the period of the highest working hours in, <laughs> in all of in human, human history. history. Right. And they think, isn't capitalism wonderful? <laughs> it gave us all this leisure. Right. And that was, you know, one of the big messages of the overworked American was to say, no, look at what happened yeah. in the, you know, 150 years before that, because it's a long period in which, you know, all those saints days and non-working days and... um there's a, a line from my book about, you know, the average medieval peasant worked, I don't know what it is, a thousand hours a year or something, you know, that it keeps showing up on Twitter and people <laughs> keep retweeting it because it's like, wow, yeah. I thought everybody before us worked all the time because yeah. they were poor. They were poor, but they weren't working that yeah. much. yeah. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors and the problems they bring? Like employees missing bills because of shorted paychecks. Managers taking the heat from angry employees about those shorted paychecks. HR and payroll teams clocking late hours to correct timesheets, expense mistakes, missing overtime, and sick days. All of that is so unnecessary. Pump the brakes on payroll errors for good by putting employees in the driver's seat. With Paycom's Betty, employees do their own payroll. Betty identifies errors and guides employees to fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong, and who knows when their pay is wrong or right better than employees. So why not let them fix payroll problems before they become problems? When you get payroll precision every time, unnecessary payroll hassles become, well, unnecessary. Manage the process to make payday right for everyone with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. If there's a surefire way to wake up feeling fresh after a night of enjoying alcohol, it's with Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/tedbusiness to get 15% off your first order when you use Ted Business at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. 
Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash tedbusiness and use the code tedbusiness at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Now I want to shift a little bit um, to your 2020 book, After the Gig. And it's a book that's wrestling with the kind of the original promise and I think the disillusion that a lot of us have now with the sharing economy. Um, it goes by many names, but that's generally the, the way we've come to describe it. Um, but one of the things I love about it is that it also has a really interesting um, concrete set of proposals for how we can actually live up to that original promise um, in some new organizational forms. And just like the four-day work week, I think it's a wonderful time to talk about this because we are in a in a time of of possibility, right? Where it feels like changes can actually happen. So I want to begin just again with a little bit of history. Um, take us through the the kind of utopian vision of this new sharing economy. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to think back to the what people thought that right. the sharing economy was going to do. So there are multiple dimensions to it. Um, one of them had to do with cutting out the middleman and, and giving value to the consumer and the, the producer. It was also thought that it was going to be fantastic for the climate crisis. It was going to reduce carbon emissions because now instead of staying in a hotel, you were going to stay in someone's air, home and Airbnb or Uber, you were going to be, somebody was going to be driving somewhere and they were just going to give you a ride. Right. right. That was like one of the yeah. original idea ride sharing. Yeah. Um, and then a, a big part of the excitement about it had to do with work and a new way to work. And the sort of big promise was that it was going to free people from bosses. And and this is why I got interested in it, because I've been, you know, studying hours of work for a long time. People could choose the number of hours they worked and when they worked. So complete control over their own schedules, which is a huge thing because most people don't have that in our economy and more and more people needed it and wanted it. So the freedom for managerial control and the freedom to set your schedule and of course also make some money. Yeah. You know, cuz many of the people who went to these apps had other jobs and other sources of income. So you did extensive studies of people working in this world. What what was the scale of that? So I uh, put together a team of graduate students. I was funded by the MacArthur Foundation. And we sort of went case by case. I think we had something like 13 cases. So each grad student could pick up an app. or a, We also looked at nonprofits, different like different sharing economy nonprofits, a makerspace, a food swap. And uh, so we were doing, in some cases, ethnography, where we'd be hanging out at these sites, or we'd be doing these trades ourselves, and then interviews with uh, users, uh, people earning money on them, also with the consumers or in the nonprofits, you know, any of the users. We did uh, some big data analysis for Airbnb. We've got a lot of that, and that's still continuing. Um but, you know, ride hail, uh, food delivery, Airbnb, Turo. Um, we did a lot of TaskRabbit. Um, 
And it went on, for, we did about seven years. Oh. The project went on for seven years. And this was an emergent sector. We were able to move with the sector. We just so kind of followed the trends. Right. Um, people started so many of these sites and apps. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds of them. So uh, many of these things failed, but... We we followed the ones that you know were getting big enough that they were worth looking at, and um, we wrote a lot of papers that were sort of cross case, which made our research very different than most. Most people did a single, you know, they'd study Uber or they'd study Airbnb, and we were doing so many of them. We had more cases than any project. The other thing that was really, I think, you know, quasi utopian about it. I've written a lot about cities over the years, and and part of the values that we associate with cities is interaction between strangers, right? That you, you, you have, you're forced to have these exchanges with people you don't necessarily know. And I think we sometimes mythologize that a little bit, like you kind of are interacting with people on the subway, but most of the time you're just sitting next to a stranger and you're not actually having a conversation. And suddenly there were these, you know, Airbnb is probably the best example where people are actually welcoming strangers into their home. And you talk about in the book about people kind of befriending people who stay at their homes and things like that. And so there was this sense of a, a lovely new kind of social commercial interaction was possible back then. Absolutely. So I... I use the term stranger sharing. Yeah. Um, and the sort of the technological innovation here was mostly people do, historically didn't like to share with strangers because you don't know them and you it's uncertain and you don't want to take the risk. So all of these apps followed what eBay pioneered, which is crowdsourcing ratings and reputational information. So the idea is you get it, uh, an explosion of stranger sharing. And my team was studying this before almost anybody was. And in the early days, so many of the people on these apps were there because they believed in that connection piece of it. Um, and they were connecting with each other. Over time, of course, that mostly changes. So in the early days of Lyft, you sat in the front and you gave the fist bump to your driver and you you became friends. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, in, in the book, I have that thing where, you know, Uber puts in that shut up and drive button where <laughs> right. you can like tell your <laughs> driver, leave me alone, yeah. right? And nobody sits in the front anymore. Right. And it just became uh, conventionalized in terms of arm's length transactions. But people really believed more on some apps than others, like Airbnb the most, I think, that they were creating a new kind of market exchange. Well, let's talk about that. So what, just describe for us what you think happened. Why, why did this not live up to its promise? You get commercialization. So rather than just a, a person who's renting out a room occasionally to other individuals, you get ghost hotel operators in which there is, you never see the person who owns it and it all, it becomes very businesslike. They hire a concierge who you probably also don't see. So you get a lot of um, contactless on some of these apps. And then with Ride Hail and with the food delivery also, the companies become very predatory so there is a class dimension here because I think in the early days you had a lot more highly educated sort of 
college students or graduates, middle class, white people doing this, partly because this all happened with the financial crash, 2008, they couldn't find jobs. So you had that uh, homophily, we call it, but, you know, love of same. Uh, The customers and the providers were in the same class. And then over time, as the companies start reducing what they're paying and making the conditions more onerous and so forth, it gets replaced by an immigrant workforce in Ride Hail, where you it's you have a a class and race uh, difference between the customer and the provider, and that also undermines the personal dimension of it because of the insidious nature of class and racial relations in this country and and domination and yeah, you know. and it's also that in a sense. In those early days, you had this incredible influx of venture capital, which was enabling companies like Uber to pay these higher rates for the drivers. So it seemed like it was a great deal. They had The drivers had more flexibility. They were getting paid good money. Um, and then companies like Uber go public, and suddenly <laughs> they realize that they actually have to theoretically make a profit. Um, and all of a sudden, they start paying yeah. their drivers less. You know what? It happens long before they go public. So the early days, the money was fabulous. And then they just realize, well, they're paying far above market for skills that are pretty general in the population, like knowing how to drive or how to ride a bike to deliver food. And they just start squeezing and squeezing and mm. squeezing. And so, you know, yes, they're preparing to go public, but the, the the squeeze starts so many mm. years mm. before uh, the companies actually go public. Did you end up with a kind of a ranking in your head of of the big platforms in terms of the ones that have come closest to living up to that original promise and the ones that have failed the most <laughs> conspicuously? Yeah, I think I call it the platform hierarchy yeah. in the in the book. I mean, it, it's more about how lucrative is it. Uh, who's on it, you know, so the like, like Airbnb is higher. Well, it's a capital asset platform and the people who go on it are more privileged. They're whiter, you know, they have more money to begin with, but uh, yeah. So all the way down to the lowest paid of them is the uh, food delivery. I mean, ride hails above it. You have to have a car to do ride hail. TaskRabbit was a very interesting platform because it was very heavily dominated on the provider side by people with college degrees. So they they did pretty well in terms of the hourly wage. Now, they, they couldn't always get enough jobs. So we had the people who were trying to do it full-time could have a good hourly wage, but they were all making below the poverty line. But on the other hand, you know, Uber is just a predatory, predatory platform that has been just disastrous for workers. And Mm. that came out very clearly in our research. So in our last section, I want to talk about this very interesting vision you have of a, a way to fix some of these problems. And the example that I'm really drawn to, which is just a kind of a new organizational form that has some echoes of older ones, um, is this idea of a, of a platform cooperative. Um, so just tell us 
what that is kind of in the abstract. Like how do you organize a platform cooperative? And then we can maybe get into a specific example. Yes, I love the platform cooperative. <laughs> so what is a cooperative? It's a worker-owned entity. All the cooperatives have management, but you know the workers may vote the management in, but there's still the management function. Now you don't need that because the software of the platform obviates a huge amount of management. Hmm. You still have to make the decisions, like what is the algorithm that you're going to build or what is the policy that you have, but the workers can do that. So the idea is that the workers own the platform, they determine um, you know, the policies. Now, one difference with a traditional worker co-op to a platform co-op is these are all individual contributor kinds of services, whereas if you have a you know, the industry that, you know, historically has had the most co-ops, worker co-ops in the U.S. is sawmills. So if you have a sawmill, yeah, there seem to be a lot of them. But uh, if you have a sawmill, you're all making the product together. But if it's a ride hail or a food co-op or or a uh, house cleaning co-op or whatever, those are individual contributors. So that's a a question about how they get paid. Do they just get the business that they bring in or... But yeah, so that's what a platform co-op is. And you have a specific example that you talk about in After the Gig, which is uh, the the platform Stocksy. Yes. Uh, which is a is basically a stock photography platform. Is that the yes, idea? Yes, exactly. It's a stock photography platform. It's like right. Getty Images or yep. Shutterstock or something. Yep. And at the time I was doing the research, it was really the only one, the only biggish successful platform co-op that existed. So it's a little bit different than say a ride hail co-op or now there are many, many um, in food delivery and ride hail, but um, phenomenally successful co-op. Um, they started with a th- about a thousand artists, very, very competitive to get into it. Uh you know, I think they used to say, like, harder to get into than Harvard College. <laughs> um, and that makes it different than most other uh, platforms. Most of these platforms are what we call open access. So anybody, as as long as you don't have a criminal record or, you know, if you want to be a ride hail driver, your car has to be a certain vintage or something. Right. But um, the artists themselves make the uh, make decisions about the platform. They own the platform. Um, and... It's been super, super successful. And how? Obviously, one of the problems that these co-ops have faced is all the the traditional platforms like an Uber have been venture funded. So you, there is some upfront cost, obviously, in creating the platform itself. Yeah. So how do you get around that chicken and egg problem? So you do need to be able to raise the capital, uh, but I think there's more and more opportunity for that. Uh, you have some municipal governments that are trying to p- support co-ops. You have crowdfunding. You have there are some ways, and some of this technology has gotten cheap. The bigger problem for them is getting the markets, mm-hmm. getting the demand. Stocksy was successful in part because it it had well two things. One is because it was a co-op, it attracted people who would never have sold their photos on stock before because it's a kind of low-class mm. part of the market. Right. But like phenomenally successful photographers thought it's so cool. So they kind of went upscale from Getty and developed a niche. It's a narrow 
segment of the market, it's not a bad place to start. And then you can try and expand into to a bigger market share after that. I think, you know, examples like Stocksy where, you know, you can see it actually working and it's a genuinely new model and it's out there, you know, actually getting better returns for its members or, you know, the, the participants in it. Um, it's just really exciting to see. Uh, and I think that we're in this moment where new forms of organization are on the table in a way that they hadn't been, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. That's, I think that's really exciting. We have a, a bonus question that we like to ask our guests on the interview. Um, and, and that is, what's the unsolved problem in your field that you're most interested in? So for me, when we've been talking about the future of work and you're, you're working on the future of work. Um, one of the things I feel really strongly about is that we have to connect this conversation to our, the conversation about the climate crisis and carbon reduction. So what are we doing in the world of work that is pushing decarbonization? Um, obviously, we're working on energy and so forth, but just in terms of our daily patterns and what households are doing and what businesses are doing. And so that's a big question. Yeah. And um, for me, most important about the shorter work time movement is what's the impact of the four-day week with five days pay on carbon emissions? Mm. And that's one of the things we're studying. Are the companies going to shut down the light and heat in the offices on that Friday? Uh, how is that going to balance out the people who are now in their homes, turning on the lights and heating them where the homes might have been empty and dark? Um, are people going to go traveling uh, for three-day weekends because they have as much money as they did before and they're going to get on a plane? You know, in Ireland especially, one of the things we're looking at is all those cheap flights. Right. I mean, you can get on a— Yeah. Uh, you can Would get, you like to be in Rome in two hours? Exactly, and it costs you $19. <laughs> right. It's, or euros, but yeah, yeah. Um, so that's you know we're we're going to be looking at that. Well, Juliet Short, thank you so much for both your context and the history and and the research, but also the optimism and the vision of how we could continue to improvise these new forms um, in really concrete ways. I, I just really enjoyed it and find it inspiring. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been a really, really fun and interesting conversation for me. The TED Interview is part of the TED Audio Collective. This episode was produced by Allie Graham. The show is brought to you by TED and Transmitter Media. Sammy Case is our story editor. Fact-checking by Talha Abdul-Wasi. Farah DeGrange is our project manager. Constanza Gallardo is our managing producer, and Greta Cohn is our executive producer. Special thanks to Michelle Quint and Anna Phelan. I'm your host, Stephen Johnson. For more information on my other projects, including my latest book, Extra Life, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen B. Johnson or sign up for my Substack newsletter, Adjacent Possible.
Support for this show comes from Economist Education. TED Business listeners know we've discussed how businesses can drive solutions to social problems, which requires understanding and presenting your data effectively. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization. Economist Education provides online executive education courses that last about two to six weeks. They're designed to empower business professionals to thrive. It covers everything from international relations, sustainability, critical thinking, and more. The courses feature senior editors from The Economist and invited experts who share their insights. Economist Education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to my exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash TEDBusiness. Enter our promo code TEDBusiness at registration. This offer ends on March 31st. Don't wait for 15% off. Go now to education.economist.com slash TEDBusiness and use promo code TEDBusiness at registration.